0: Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business.
1: Hi, everyone. Today, we're speaking with Jessica Konz, the founder and CEO of Eatsy, a QR code digital menu and guest register used by over 800 restaurants and counting. In this jam-packed episode, Jessica tells us all about overcoming imposter syndrome, redefining what it means to fail, and why you should dream bigger for your business. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to join our Facebook group, The Female Founders Network, if you want to meet and learn from more like-minded female business owners from all around the world.
0: Hi Jess, how are you today?
2: I am doing wonderful, how are you? So good, and where are you calling in from? So I'm currently sitting in my home office in Kuji, which is about Three minute walk from the beach and I feel very blessed to be living in this beautiful area. Oh, beautiful. Uh, I love Coogee
0: Beach and for those of you listening in uh, from the UK or US or Canada or wherever else, um, Coogee is a beach on the shore on the in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, Australia.
2: Yeah, beautiful place to call home. <laughs>
1: it is. So tell us about yourself. Are you originally from Coogee or did you grow up somewhere else
2: in Australia? So I actually grew up in Newcastle, Australia, which is probably about two and a half hours from Sydney, mm-hmm. and that was um yeah I lived there for my entire life until about eighteen months ago when I moved to Sydney. But I had a beautiful upbringing in Newcastle again, like such a such a coastal beach place. You know, just you know, great great restaurants, great bars, and just a lot more like low key than I think Sydney is. But mm-hmm. it was a really beautiful place to get brought up. And I'm such a beach girl. So living, you know, no more than 10 minutes away from the beach was such a beautiful lifestyle to grow up in. And obviously why I love the beach so much now.
0: <laughs> Isn't Newcastle also like a big like kind of mining and blue collar or like trade kind it of is. town? Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. It has a lot of that because obviously the coal ships um, with the Newcastle Harbour. And then also it has a really big like shoe town as well because of the university. So it's got pretty mixed from like blue collar to students to um, just like families that want to settle down there as well.
1: Yeah, interesting. So when were you when you were younger, what did you think you were gonna be when you grew up? What was what were your aspirations? Tell us everything.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm a hospital girl at heart. I started working in hospitality from the age of like fourteen, I think. And I always thought that I'd open up a cafe or a restaurant. That was like my life goal. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I worked in hospitality until age of I think 20 was the last year that I worked um I got climbed the ranks to a supervisor position in hospitality and ended up working for a pretty shitty boss it turned me off working hospitality ever again yeah. and it's one of those things that I think was a huge blessing in disguise because if it wasn't for that I probably wouldn't have gotten out of the industry when I did but mm-hmm. when I did work for this pretty terrible boss I just Woke up one day and I was just like, I, like, I'm one of those miserable people that serves you that you just like, if you hate your job, just quit. Like, I became that person. I yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I need to do something about this. So I did. I just quit my job. And I um at this, a similar time to feeling that way, I'd also on the side started up a, a food blog. It was a food guide to the Newcastle restaurant scene. And I'm a massive foodie, obviously. Um, you know, just I started off doing it with taking photos of food from places that I was eating at and then from there it kind of grew into something a lot bigger where we had restaurants reaching out to us asking to be featured and I'd go there and take photos and blog about it and then uh, one day we started getting asked by a few restaurants to run their social media which was pretty big because I I had no idea that that's where that Instagram page would ever go. But the first restaurant that ever asked and, um, you know, said we'd we'd love to pay you to do this, I ended up saying yes and thinking, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. Like they know that I don't have really experience in this and I've been pretty transparent about that from the start. But they'd seen what we'd created with the Instagram page, which at that time was probably had about like 30,000 followers Mm -hmm. just in Newcastle. So doing well enough to have some kind of presence there and um, yeah, I said yes and and I started my first social media gig and before I knew it in about three years' time, I had a full-on social media marketing agency where we had about 12 staff working for us. Wow, <laughs> um, that is insane. So like, All yeah, hospitality.
0: I literally
2: like, uh, a lot of them were hospitality, mostly restaurants, but there oh, were wow. some food retail too, like uh, some bigger brands. We ran oh. the, uh, the uh, social media for a really big Asai company. Um, we we worked with some kombucha companies, like just really cool companies that are in like food still, but not necessarily just restaurants.
0: Yeah. And if you guys, um, for those of you who haven't been to Sydney or Australia in general, there's a really big health food culture here. Um, yeah. So if you're listening in from the States, it's um, similar to something, you know, in LA or, you know, mm. a, a more progressive area. There, it's definitely um, a big thing here is the yeah. new, the latest yeah. like health food.
1: And the food not only is good for you and tastes good, but it also looks gorgeous yes it's competitive yeah yeah the way that Hmm. things are so Instagrammable. yeah 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 oh my gosh so so all of a sudden then you well not all of a sudden it kind of happened over a small period of time but you have this Mm. agency with 12 staff you didn't realize it was going to go in this direction what happened then
0: Hang on, wait. What? I want to go back to like how you grew an agency. Like, can we just touch on yeah. that for a second? So, like, yeah. you yeah, had this absolutely. talent, and then all of a sudden, you have an agency that just doesn't just happen. So, like,
2: what? it definitely, yeah, I definitely didn't just like wake up one day and I had twelve staff. It was um, it was a slow progress, but it also, you know, like you said, it did go really fast as well. So. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever hired an employee was we got booked for a photo shoot where when I say we, it was me. I catch myself doing that all the time. I was literally the only person in this <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we did this. <laughs> um, so I found myself in a position where I got booked for a photo shoot where I felt pretty out of my depth because I was just like self-taught up to that stage. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to connect with photographer and we can uh a shoot. So I reached out and ended up bringing some oh sorry easy.
0: Jess you just cut out for a second you said I, oh, no. I got booked and I was out of my depth and then we lost <laughs> you
2: okay so I got booked for a photo shoot and I felt pretty out of my depth because at that point we were getting booked for like pretty like a pretty frequent photo shoots. so I reached out to a photographer in Newcastle and ended up bringing them on full-time because we were that busy so mm. that was my first ever employee and we both just started like managing social media accounts together as we grew but she was the one that would take all the photos for the restaurants and Uh from there it was just like the more clients we picked up the more people I had to hire and I had good I had a good support network around me my family's pretty entrepreneurial and and working for yourself is not uncommon so I had good support when it came to that but I definitely did not think that I would ever you know accidentally start a marketing agency and all of a sudden have like a lot of staff and a lot of clients that I was responsible for. So I learned a lot. I made so many mistakes doing that. It was my first business. I taught myself a lot and I didn't, I didn't go to university, like I didn't study any of that. It was all self-taught, which I think is one of the amazing things about social media marketing is, mm. you know, by the time you've done a university degree, most of the things have changed anyway, so. That was my experience. Um, I've, yeah. I've used
1: nothing for my marketing degree in my actual job. It's all stuff I've learned yeah. since.
2: Social media didn't exist <laughs> no. when I
0: graduated my, with my bachelor's there you go. and yeah. I'm a brand marketing director, so it's, it's like
2: yeah. all learned I think on the job. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's very important to have like a basic, but you know the base of understanding around marketing and psychology and and I think that's really important and you can get a lot of it like your learnings from university with that but you know how to set up Facebook ads and things like that that are very relevant mm. to brands today to succeed you don't get taught that so
1: yeah. uh, you
2: know Facebook teaches you that they've got this incredible resource called Blueprint I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of it or, or any of your listeners have but it's yep. literally a huge free online resource of how to how to run successful Facebook ads and Instagram ads so mm. I put some of my staff through that, and they'd learn how to do that. And then, yeah, we worked with some amazing brands over the over the time that I that I ran the agency. And it's basically innovation and
0: curiosity. Like that's what you need, I think, if you're working for someone and you want mm. to continually get better. Of course, you need innovation, and curiosity. But you're doing this, working for yourself. You know, completely responsible for your own paycheck, and then also responsible for. Twelve other people's paychecks, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, Uh,
2: so yeah. I guess being responsible for those like that amount of people and and making sure that they get paid every week. I I started off for the first four years, not even paying myself, and it was something that I made that decision. I decided to live off savings for a while until I grew up the grew the team. And I think for me, as as um, the founder of that, I kind of just felt like if I could pay myself, I'd rather hire somebody else and give them that salary. Yeah, which. I, I don't think it's like the smartest idea, but also I, I I couldn't justify it any other way. Like I knew we needed more people to help us and I was the one that could kind of take that lower salary or slash not any salary at all for a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is crazy. Uh, it's amazing mm. that you had that much savings, first of all. Like, how old were you
2: when this was happening? <laughs> like, what's- I was 20. I, I mean, I didn't what? have very much to so like, yeah, I was 20 <laughs> years old. So I'm 27 now. I started the agency when I was 20. So I did that for about six years. And and then at the end of last year, I sold the agent. Sorry, end of the year before now, because we're in the new year. Yeah. Um, it's about two years ago. I sold the agency just to focus full time on Etsy. So,
1: wow, I started that business very young. <laughs> That's incredible. So, did you go to like a kind of like like business for sale website, or did you use a broker? How how did you come to the decision yeah, to make that sale question. and then do it?
2: It actually happened very serendipitously. It was sorry, very serendipitous how it happened. I I ended up hiring someone. When I went to San Francisco for six months to go through this accelerator program, which we can, I'm sure, touch more on. But Mm -hmm. I, I knew that I couldn't run the agency while I was also doing this accelerator program for my startup. So I had someone come on board that essentially was looking after the agency while I was gone. And then it was such a smooth transition from that where they were like, we love I love doing this and I, and I want to continue doing it. And I wanted to continue doing Etsy full time. So it was an internal sale. It was amazing because oh, wow. she already knew our clients, our team, and it was just very smooth. So, so seamless. Yeah.
1: How good. Yeah. Very seamless. Yeah. Okay. So while you're doing the agency then was when you got the idea for what is now Etsy. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So okay. about Four years ago, I had the idea. Um, I was brainstorming one day with my brother, actually, who's very much in startups, and and he he's been the, the BD for Telstra's accelerator program, Mirror D. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but um, he's seen hundreds of startups go through and you know succeed and fail, and and you know it's all very, very. Um, I guess, spoken about in our family about, you know, if you have an idea that let's brainstorm it and maybe see if you can go for it and give it a crack. So I thought of this idea which was like I'm such a visual person when it comes to discovering restaurants. Like I always check out their Instagram. I want to see what the food looks like. I don't want to read reviews. So I was like wouldn't it be amazing if there was an app that you could swipe through pictures of food, you could say what you feel like and if you're like vegan or anything like that and I guess it would be like Tinder for food. And he was like, this is a really great idea. Like, I like, we started Googling it, literally Googling Tinder for food to see if it existed and, Stop at it. that time. <laughs> there was nothing like it. And I was like, how does this not exist? Like, it was one of those ideas that when you hear it, you're just like, oh, it's so obvious. Yeah. Like, how could this not exist? Uh-huh. So yeah, it literally came from like this lounge room brainstorming session to then me Flying over to Bali, where he was doing remote working for a while with his agency, uh-huh. and he was like, "Hey, one of our developers has two weeks uh, spare between projects. Do you want to come over and start building your idea?" And I was like, wow. "Um, yes, <laughs> absolutely." Wow. Um, so, I, yeah, I literally flew over to Bali, and Ubud holds a very special place in my heart because it's the first, you know, the first time I ever got to see my idea come into fruition. And wow. we worked for two weeks straight on this really basic MVP prototype where. I could then go back to Newcastle and, and show restaurants what we'd done and, and start signing them up. So that was the very the, yeah, the very start of the journey with Etsy was just launching it in Newcastle, talking to restaurants that we had relationships with through the agency and saying to them, you know, is this something that you would like to be a part of? It's a different way to be discovered. Um, it's through pictures of food and, and it showcases that visual element of your restaurant rather than what people might know you as and what they think you have on the menu. So... We ended up signing up about 100 restaurants in Newcastle in the first 12 months wow. and and had like 20,000 people download the app when it first launched in so 12 months it was like that's really insane. validating
1: oh my god <laughs> yeah. with um when Airbnb started there's a famous story about how they increased bookings for their hosts by actually sending a photographer down to yep. all of the yep. places to make sure that the quality was you know amazing is that something that you did for Etsy as well or did it you, is yeah yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah that was the entire I like started the business model was us being able to connect them to a photographer, and those photos would be used on the app, but also they'd use them for their social media, their websites. It was almost like a photography subscription behind the scenes. Yeah. But um, I I honestly like that business model was something that was very hard to scale as I started to think about new markets, trying to find photographers and make that business model work when the difference between restaurants and Airbnb listings is that restaurants change their menu sometimes weekly, most often just seasonally, whereas, uh, you know, an Airbnb listing can be photographed once and then never photographed again. Yeah. Very, very different. Um, And I realized that doing it where, you know, there would be sometimes I would go and photograph an entire menu of like literally like 60 dishes. And then a month later, they'd be like, oh, we changed the menu. Can can you come back again? And I'm just like... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> done this. Yeah. So is that something yeah. that you had to then like think of like service level agreements with the restaurants for that you come like every so often or do you just
2: go and yeah, do well, that all the time? We had we had different subscription packages which was like do you want us to come monthly, do you want Smart. us to come quarterly yeah. um, and it was just essentially like how often they wanted us to come take photos and update the menus but okay. again like uh, very hard to scale that because then every city that you're trying to launch in you have to connect with like photographers and um it's just it's also that classic business model which is like chicken and the egg where you have to sign the restaurants up first to be able to have people discover them on the app But you know restaurants always want to make sure that there's people on the platform in that area to be worthwhile discovering so it was was, um definitely has its challenges and still does so you started out as
1: an app but now you just scan with your camera and you don't need an app
2: Mm. was so i that's guess accurate. the best way to describe it is um we have two sides of the business so b2c so business to consumer is the ec app and that's the tinder for food style interface mm-hmm. and then our b2b side of the business which is what we charge restaurants for is digital menus so when okay. you're at a restaurant you scan a qr code and you're um, taken to a visual menu through your mobile which is pictures of every single one of the menu items so you can see it before you have to order in um yeah. and that's that's that other side of the business which took off during COVID to be honest like that that is what really sent us kind of um uh, into this rapid growth um phase of last year which was we went from having like 200 restaurants to over 800 now just just from these digital menus
1: wow oh my gosh yeah so COVID really accelerated it for you then
2: it, it did yeah and we also um we, we managed to last year get push out a new website update which was almost like a self-service model where before we'd have to like you know we'd reach out to a restaurant and it was very manual trying to sign them up and digitalize their menu whereas now any restaurant in the world can come to our website and create a visual menu within like 10 minutes using our onboarding and it's just approved it's just there it's live and that's something that is a big point of difference for us because it helped us scale during COVID a lot so we had restaurants all around the world signing up and creating these digital menus in you know uh, a very quick time frame to be able to get them live and help adapt to the fact that people didn't want to touch paper menus anymore and people had to check in and sign-in through guest registers. So we had a lot of things like that that helped accelerate us last year. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's another thing just to explain really quickly. So there is a very advanced tracking system in Australia that mm. definitely doesn't exist in America right now. So the, the tracking system that we have over here. Every time you go to a restaurant, you have to check in Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. if someone else was at that restaurant at the same time or on the same day, the government can then contact you and say, hey, there was a person with COVID in your general vicinity. You might want to go get checked if you're not feeling well, et cetera. They don't actually have that tracking system in a lot of places. But once that became a thing, I mean, how did your business model change or did it change?
2: It did, definitely. So we built our own guest register it, within like 24 hours we had it live because it was something that I was just like, we have to do it now. Yeah. So what we did was we built in a guest register system and from someone checking into the venue through our guest register, it then defaulted to the visual menu. So it was just like all in your mobile. Like you could be at a table check in and then all of a sudden there was this visual menu in front of you without having to do anything else. Mm-hmm. So awesome. that was great because before that it was it was almost like digital menus were so foreign to people, especially visual menus, that it was like you're not really looking for a QR code to scan to find it, unless the waiter comes over and says like, "Hey, we have this visual menu. Scan this to see pictures." Then you're not looking for a QR code when you're ordering. You're just looking at the menu. Yes. Yeah. So it was it was wonderful for <laughs> us to be able to increase those page views because that that you know forced people essentially to get go from check in to then. Seeing our visual menus. So that was really great. Like, one of the restaurants in Dubai that we have using our platform. Place called C. La Vie, and that restaurant alone has had over 400,000 page views on the digital menu. Just one restaurant.
0: Wow. Wow. And it's like, a way it's, it's to wild. make, yeah. And it's uh, like, honestly, it's a, made, a way to make people comply with having to check in. Is mm. you, if you want to see the menu, yes. you've got yeah, to definitely. check in to see the menu, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. It's, it's so simple. Launched- you know, but yeah, like, <laughs> so it is. So
2: many people wouldn't think about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. So, yeah, it it is. It's very easy. You have to sign in. Um, It's mandatory to do that and then you're able to see the menu. And based on that feedback from restaurants that we had about that, we, we had restaurants wanting to use the guest information from the digital guest register for marketing. And we were like, there's absolutely no way you can do that. So what we did based on response for that is we built in within the menu what was like a lead capture form. So similar to when you're shopping on an e-commerce site where it says like, hey, leave your email address and get 10% off, we built that into the digital menus for Etsy as well. So you could punch your details in and it was already preloaded from checking in through the guest register and you could get like $30 off the next meal, things like that. The restaurant's being very generous with those kinds of um, offers and incentives to want to build the, that marketing database. So Smart. it was it was really cool to see how all of that evolved from something that was like you know global pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: yeah, it created an opportunity for you, right? Because mm-hmm. there's something yeah. that restaurants need if they want to be open. And mm-hmm. it happens to be adjacent to the service that you're already providing, so you just expand yeah. that service, and then there you go.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, it, so that was a huge focus for us last year. Just um, yeah, trying to adapt to everything that COVID threw at us. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you're currently you've got 800 restaurants. You have these a consumer app that's Tinder for food. You've also got this amazing digital menu that allows customers to visually see what they're about to eat and feel inspired, which is mm. great for business. But can we just rewind to the point where you'd created the MVP, you had a few rest, few hundred restaurants signed up, you then entered a competition.
2: Was this for an accelerator? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell so us a little bit what about it was, that? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So I had one of my advisors send me an email one day, which was an application for a startup pitching competition in Sydney called Launch Festival. And I'd never heard of Launch Festival, but I'd heard of the investor that was running it in Sydney. His name is Jason Calacanis and he's one of the most famous angel investors in the world. Like he was one of the first 10 investors in Uber. He um, has a few unicorns under his belt now um, and I love his podcast, This Week in Startup. So I was a big fan and I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. He's coming to Sydney. Um, and the prize was 100,000 US dollars and 12 weeks in San Francisco going through his accelerator program. So wow. I was like, Wow, yeah, that was my response. I was like, "This this is going to like change someone's life. Like, if whoever wins this is gonna, it's gonna be huge for them." But uh, for me, I was just like, "This is just gonna be good exposure. Like, we've been in in Newcastle this whole time. It's time to branch out to Sydney." Yeah. So I honestly saw it as a as an opportunity to just like get the app out there and hopefully people would download it. But a few a few thousand people applied for it, and they had thirty people that were able to pitch on stage. So. I ended up being selected as one of them. And I um it was over a, a three day event. So they had like really great guest speakers and they broke all the companies up. So it was like ten people a day pitched and on the third day they announced the winner. And I guess long story short, obviously I was I was um, one of the one of the winners, That's which got, got yeah, I got to go to San Francisco and um it totally changed my life. Like they ended up picking three companies to go over so they gave away like three hundred thousand dollars which is amazing and yeah I was one of them I honestly like I can't think of anything that's changed my life more than that moment
0: have you ever had you ever been to the U.S. or San, San Francisco before
2: no never it was one of those things that it's like you know you always dream of being able to go there and you listen to podcasts from founders that are very successful and they're all from there but i would never been mm-hmm. before and I and, didn't think I'd go from Newcastle to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, so what was that like?
0: I mean like Newcastle is a small town, right? It's a small town very. close to a big city so it might be yeah. like a Knoxville, Tennessee for those of you who are listening you mm-hmm. know, from the US. It's so, you know, going from there to where you've been to founding an agency with, you know, no mm-hmm. marketing degree and like all of the stuff. It's such <laughs> so incredible and then founding this company winning this accelerator going to San Fran to be you know in you know the middle of the scene like what was that
2: like like how did you handle that
0: (laughs) emotionally and mentally Um,
2: (laughs) yeah so I mean I'm not gonna lie like when I first got there I definitely felt like I really really out of my depth like I got there and I was like all right. I'm, I'm not very risk averse. I am pretty much like, you know, whatever you want to do in life, try it. And the worst thing it's going to do is you'll be exactly where you started back mm-hmm. where you, Love back it. where you were before. So, um, I've always kind of lived by that. So when I flew over there, I was just like, I have no idea what to expect. I've never done anything like this before. I'm here on my own, but um, I'm just gonna, just gonna take it as it comes. And I remember there was one day where I was going around trying to talk to restaurants to sign them up over there. And I walked out of a restaurant and just like burst into tears because I was like, why did I think I could do this? Oh my God, this is too much. But, um, (laughs) but then the next day I was just like, nah, get your shit together, Jess, you've got this. Like, (laughs) um, nobody knows what they're doing. Like that's one of the biggest realizations that I had over there is every Mm. single person starts off having no idea what they're doing. And everyone, everyone feels like, Yeah, everyone feels like um, they've got that like whole imposter syndrome where it's like, you know, how did I end up here? And um, I think that the sooner you realise that like everyone around you, that whether they're successful in in a way that's similar to you or very different, they too had no idea what they were doing when they started off. And it's just the people they met and the learnings along the way that got them to where they are. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that
0: helped a lot. Mm. I love that. I I just mm. wanted to spend some time on that because there's so much first of all. There's so much imposter syndrome that especially happens with women. Right. Like we're yeah. all like, oh, really? Us? Or we should be like, yeah, of course us. Mm. Like, yeah. Um, but everyone, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter like what your experience is, what your qualifications, quote unquote, are like anyone mm. can get there. You know, it's harder. Yeah. When you don't have yeah. a lot of those benefits or privileges, if you will. But, mm. you know, like LeBron James, I love like how he always says just a kid from Akron. Akron mm. is like a really yeah, yeah. like. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not like an economically, like, awesome place to be from or like a place with privileges. And he was raised by a single mom in Akron, and he's Mm. arguably one of the most – he's, I think, the best basketball player in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people are going to argue with me about that, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, and he's just a kid from Akron. But it's like you're just a kid from Newcastle. And you got there. You know, I'm just a kid from another small town in Ohio and I got where Mm -hmm. I am. Like anybody can get anywhere and you don't let your past, you know, shape your future.
2: Definitely not. And I think one of the best things that I had to, I think, unlearn over the last few years is what failure and success means to me. And I think that... You know, people look at failure as in, like, all right, well, the business didn't work out and, and you tried but you failed. Whereas for yeah. me, I was like, what Like, what does success look like for me? Success is um, for a lot of, you know, venture capitalists and people that are investing in companies like mine, success is, like, getting 100x their return on, on investment from from. Um, from that that company being acquired. But for me personally, yes, while I want that to happen for the company, my personal success is building a platform that didn't exist that people use and has impacted them in some kind of positive way. Mm, So even if, like, you know, a a few hundred people have used it and seen value from it, like, that for me is not failure. Like, I built something that I wanted to exist. And that's probably one of the biggest pieces of advice Mm. that I give founders that, you know, pitch me their ideas where I say to them, If this fails, like a lot of businesses do, the chances are actually higher that it will fail, than it will succeed and become, you know, a hundred million dollar business. And if that happens, will you be just proud that you you tried to, to build a platform that you wanted to exist? Like you have to be so proud of what you're building that whether it succeeds or fails, you just did it because you wanted it to exist in the world. And that for me is like what I'm doing
1: oh that's like really touched me that's so good <laughs> yeah
0: right? yeah that's amazing. but yeah, that's everything so that you do it's like it, who yeah. gives a
2: shit if it fails you're the it only one takes watching that fear away from it <laughs> yeah. exactly it really takes that fear away from it where it's just like people people you know are going to see you fail and it's like well it also is like how will you portray that like let's say easy <laughs> failed tomorrow If anyone said to me, like, oh, tell me about this business, I'd be like, I worked my fucking ass off, excuse my French, for four years Mm. building something that I knew I needed to exist. I knew it needed to exist because I wanted to use it. I wanted it to exist. And I'll do it until until there's, you know, reason for it not to exist anymore. So for me it's like. I'm proud if it succeeds or fails based on anyone's definition of what they think that means. Yeah. And
0: that goes, that carries over. It's like business, entrepreneurship, careers, Mm. personal life. Like I remember people being like, because I got divorced at 27. I was divorced at 27 years old. And I remember people being like, oh, my God, you know, and, like, Love other people, be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, are, aren't you worried about what people think? Like, you're a divorced person now, you know, as if it was some sort of stigma or something. Like, Man, failure it's, it's, yeah. is just a learning moment.
2: Like, that's, it's, who yeah. gives a shit? And, you know, like, it's and like... And also, like, time does not equal success. Like, right. you could spend five years with somebody and only then realize that they're not the right person for you. Right. And you have a decision to make in that moment, which is either do I accept that the five last five years of my life was, you know, possibly a waste. Or do I waste the rest of my life? So mm-hmm. that's what people think, like seriously. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like and, a
0: learning journey, right? Like it was absolutely. a learning journey and I would yeah. have gotten into better relationships if I hadn't been in a shit one, you know? Or yeah. exactly. you wouldn't start a successful a business unless you realize that you didn't want to be an agency owner anymore
2: yeah you know? and there was really like a lot of um I think the the stigma around failure in Australia is probably a lot worse than what I realized it was in America like people almost mm-hmm. wear their failures as like stripes of honor in America there was yeah. people in their pictures that would yeah and say um like I I you know I failed at f- four businesses before this one and before I started this next business I build a product for a solution that I knew the world needed one for. So it yeah. wasn't just like building technology and then trying to find a problem that it solved. It was the other way around. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And a lot of investors won't invest in first-time founders because they're just like, there's just mistakes that you're going to make that's going to waste money. As yeah. a first-time founder.
0: Because
1: <laughs> so yeah. no what you're doing. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting.
2: Yeah. I think that – let's touch on that for a second. Like, the cultural
0: stuff. Like, mm-hmm. we all have cultural stuff that we have to deal yeah. with and, like, move past. I think you are, yeah. right? Like, in the States, there's almost, like – it's almost, you know, I, I would – argue that it almost goes the other way, where, like, we glorify the rags-to-riches story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, we glorify it, like, a little bit too much. Like, it's like, come on, everybody's (laughs) got successes. Everybody, like, why can't we all just be completely transparent and and just be like, yep, screwed this up. This went well for me. I had this privilege that helped out, you know, and, like, give, like, have a really fair picture. It's like, we all have these kind of narratives, but I definitely agree that in the states it's almost like a badge of honor whereas in the uk or australia perhaps it's like something that you hide a little bit more there's almost like this weird
1: badge of honor of being overly humble about something like that's like Mm. why
0: be humble
1: because because it's our culture to not not be bragging but it's not bragging but it's like yeah it's a weird I don't like it I mean
2: I get I get Well, that was an interesting yeah sorry go no 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 I'm sorry I just
0: I I get the whole like I think women are humble enough like we're taught to be humble enough like it's Mm -hmm. and I get not being like a total asshole and just like talking about yourself all day Mm -hmm. but I mean come on like we should be able to talk about our successes without feeling like jerks. Yeah,
2: I agree. I, I definitely felt like it was like black and white going from a, that Australian humility, cultural upbringing to America where it's like whatever I thought was big, was not big enough. Like I thought yeah. that I thought big and dreamt big. And then I got there and I was like, oh my God, I have to like 10X <laughs> this. Like this is not, because you get out there and people are just like, if you're not going to believe that your business is beca- going to become a hundred million dollar business, like who else is going to believe in that for you. Like it's yeah. like there is <laughs> part of that where it's like if you're not gonna believe that it's gonna be successful, no one else is gonna believe that mm. for you. You have to be the person that thinks it's gonna be that if that's what you want. Like if you're getting getting into this tech space where if you want to raise venture capital money, like you're not going to be able to do that based on small business vision. Like you're going to yeah. need to try and build something that's going to be like Uber and and Airbnb because otherwise, like raise angel money or get a bank loan. Like don't try and go after venture capital because they need a hundred x returns to be able to you know get get that um, profit back for their funds. So yeah. it's, it's I learned a lot about that and realized it's like, that there's there is like a formula behind it, mm-hmm. and the more you can realize that the more you realize, like, I went in so, like, naive. We had the opportunity to pitch to Sequoia and it it was, like, the craziest thing. I was in the room and I was, like, one of those pinch-yourself moments where you're, like, how did I get here? And I'm pitching to Sequoia thinking, like, the optimistic person that I am that, oh, my God, they're going to love this, they're going to invest. (laughs) And then I walked out and I asked um, one of the guys that managed the Accelerator program, I was, like, how do you think we did? And he was like, oh, you guys look it amazing, but they're not going to invest. And I was like, why not? And he was like, because they write $50 million checks. If they invested mm-hmm. in your business, they'd own 100% of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, okay, cool. Thanks for the reality check. <laughs> yeah,
0: but that's like that's part bad. of it. It's okay to like have that moment, you know, where you realize yeah. how big the world is and like, what the possibilities yeah. are. That's a beautiful moment, you know? Yeah, and you don't want to give up too much
2: equity too quickly. Like there's people that yeah. do raise venture capital money. They raise like $3 million right off the back and then it's like, cool, you have like four the company left. Like congratulations, you raised a lot of money, but for what? Like could you have also bootstrapped it for a while? Like could you have held off on fundraising? Like I just, one of my biggest frustrations about this kind of founder, startup, entrepreneurial world mm. is it seems like there's a formula that everyone feels like they have to follow yeah and uh, and if you're not raising money and if you're not doing that then then you're you're falling behind and i don't think that that's always the case like there's amazing case studies around like companies like survey monkey that never raised money until the very very end when they went to like a series a and you know skipped every single other round it's like yeah. there's really cool stories like that and mailchimp where they just bootstrapped as well it.
1: mailchimp mailchimp
2: yeah there totally. are ton- so, you know what's so interesting
0: about you, Mm Jazz, is you were raised and I was, I I just say this because I was like raised but in a very similar type of place. You are raised in Newcastle like in like, and it's a little bit, um, I, I want to say traditional like it does remind me of Ohio mm. where I grew up like the Midwest yeah. in the United States and like my dad didn't take a bunch of loans he didn't take yeah and I love the fact that you're like noticing that because I noticed that kind of stuff too like you don't necessarily yeah. need to raise a ton of money you can do it yeah. on your own if that's what you want to do
2: you know like yeah you, and like, I, absolutely yeah. go ahead I think it's trying to discover what kind of founder you want to be in this space. Like if you want to grow a business, that's going to become Airbnb and Uber get ready for your, your journey as a founder to be literally multiple rounds of funding investors that are like, you know, holding you by your neck. Like you've got no control over your business because there's people that have more control than you. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's just like, man, I mean, we've seen so many of the mighty fall and like all everything that happened with WeWork was huge to see that like crumble in the startup scene where it's like, hey, investors now looking at businesses and saying, do you reckon they're ever going to make money? No, (laughs) like this is literally no way this business will ever make money. And yet they raised like like hundreds of millions of dollars from SoftBank, like insane Mm. stories like that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you know what I thought was really interesting? I actually listened to a podcast with, uh, Was it the founder or the CEO of Uber? I don't remember which one. I should know more uh, about who it was or whatever. (laughs) But they were talking about getting profitable. And they were talking about their reputation. And there was so much. um, It just seemed to be a little bit of a disconnect because the woman Mm. interviewing, I believe it was on the Sway podcast, the woman interviewing was like, did you know – Restaurants kind of hate you. <laughs> Did you know they lose money? Like, are yeah. you aware? And he was kind of yeah. like, they don't hate us. Like, you know, blah blah blah. And so well, wow, it's yeah, and it's interesting to me that some tech founders are grounded in so much reality, and yeah. or you know, leadership, some tech leadership uh, members, let's yeah. say that are founded in so much reality and like just common sense insights.
2: Yeah. yeah i think based on that as well is like there's there's a lot of businesses that i think there was a podcast episode on a few companies that are um like they, they dove deep into companies around like should this exist mm-hmm. and they looked at uber eats as one of them where they were like it's a business that's great for the consumer but it really like destroys restaurants in the process but yeah. a lot of consumers don't realize that like 35 to 40 percent is going towards uber Eats. but even then uber Eats isn't even profitable anyway so it's mm. like it's just like one of those businesses that's like should this exist yeah <laughs> um, yeah interesting.
0: does it need a wholesale yeah. like kind of revisit on on mm. the way that it's run
1: yeah know?
2: exactly yeah so
1: when you before you went to sf you have probably had like one idea of what the future of Etsy looked like can you tell us what that was but then can you now tell us what it what it is now after that trip and having done it yeah. now for a couple of years with COVID yeah
2: so. well I definitely wanted it to become a household name like I wanted people to think about Etsy when they think about where to dine out like mm-hmm. you know you'd think about Yelp or TripAdvisor or that's still obviously a goal that um is it's going to come with a lot more hard work and a lot more time. Uh, Those businesses definitely are not overnight successes. You look at it and you're like, oh, this is like, you know, founded 20 years ago (laughs) and and now everybody knows about it. But um, the biggest thing that we had to kind of revisit about where we want the future of Etsy to go to is that um, we didn't want it just to be content created by our platform. We wanted to bring in people that were also influential in food and also foodies that love to go out and take photos and be able to have them, be able to contribute content to the platform like you would on Instagram, for example. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the app being more of an open kind of user-generated user, user generated content uh, with contributions around like where you eat and where you'd recommend eating so that people that trust you, friends and family, can look and see your almost like your food diary. Oh, so yeah. that's something that I'm excited to see if that becomes like a part of what we do in the next year. Um there's, uh-huh. there's a lot of ideas that I have, but it's just trying to prioritize which one we think is going to be the one that is the one.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah.
2: And how do you do that? How do you prioritize which one is the one? A lot of it is just like whatever I feel is going to be the biggest opportunity and that I'm drawn to the most. Because you know I could literally show you a Trello board with like a hundred different features that we could build and different things that we could do and different directions we could go, and. I think it's hard because, like, you don't have a crystal ball to ever look back and decide if that was the right decision to make. You just had to do something. Mm, So uh, I think it's just, like, trusting your gut that, you know, you'll never know which one was the right one, but doing something is better than nothing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And testing on, like, in a low-fidelity manner, like, what's the, like, the the minimum viable test you could make to test something in, real time and then make a decision from that? rather than like building out a product and building out a whole new feature and spending loads of money on it and then being like, oh, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You know what I think is quite interesting? We like, you know, just because I've worked in marketing my whole life, um, but Mm. I think when it comes to marketing, when it comes to new products, new business, blah, 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 we are overly obsessed with metrics and we're overly Mm. obsessed with this like, okay, what does the data tell us? But Mm. you run on intuition. And there's so much that can be said on running on Mm. intuition, right? Like being curious, paying attention, talking to people, like noticing trends, you know, like all of that stuff is so underrated right now because everybody's like, oh, Mm. well, the data tells us this and the data tells us that. Mm. It's At some point, it's like, screw your data. Like, yes, use it to verify things. But like you need to have that curiosity and intuition to
2: decide
1: what's important
2: yeah yeah that's a that's a really um like really nice insight because I think that you think of the companies that are the big ones and there's no data that could have told you that one day people would be renting out rooms in their house and Airbnb (laughs) would be as big as it is or that people would be letting people into their backseat to drive them places the complete strangers so um actually in fact the data told people that that is a terrible idea and you'll go to jail like I remember there was a there was an interview with um the founder of airbnb and they were saying like like if you raise money for this and you build this business you're gonna get up and you're gonna end up in jail because someone's gonna be murdered in a house that's under an airbnb listing like literally like that's what people thought about it yeah
1: (laughs) crazy (laughs) yeah wow so cool well thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast it was amazing to hear your story and i'm so excited to be seeing geesey and all the restaurants that i go to
2: also. yeah absolutely and i um i can't wait to listen to more episodes with all the amazing female founders that you guys have it's um it's amazing what you guys are doing thank you if thank anyone you wants so to much. find
1: um eat and download the app or just discover restaurants where can they find you
2: yeah so uh we're at eatsy.app on all the social media handles so you can find us on instagram facebook linkedin all of all of the good ones <laughs>
0: beautiful So fun. Thank you so much, Jess. Keep in touch. We are connecting with you right now. (laughs) Excellent.
1: All right. Chat soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. And we're helping close the gender-based pay gap because the current U.S. gender-based pay gap sits at around 19%. Listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast will get exactly 19% off of
2: any subscription. Just use the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.